Today on Categorical Imperatives, we need to talk about some new issues relating to SB8. Now, this is Texas's controversial fetal heartbeat bill that bans all abortions as early as six weeks into the pregnancy. Okay. All abort! Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, I just want to remind you guys that these, uh, the, the show has a new uh, website set up. Uh, I, I'm still kind of working on it a bit, but it is up and functional, and you can go there and find uh, archives of all the past episodes, both in their audio and video format, as well as links to other places, uh, such as a number of different sites and organizations that I write articles for, dealing with all matter of law and politics. And you can find ways to go support the show, such as by becoming a patron over on Patreon, leaving a tip over at PayPal, or uh, any other number of things. Also helps you to get in touch with me through a number of different social media platforms, email, all that good stuff. Go check it out. It's a website. Yeah. Well, let's just uh, get right to the topic today, huh? Now, I just want to start out uh, by uh, humbly pointing out uh, how correct I was a few months ago. Because prior to the Supreme Court's consideration of the case of Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, I warned you guys right here on this show that barring pre-enforcement challenges to Texas's SB8 would make it easier for blue states to constrain constitutionally protected individual rights that conservatives uh, and even libertarians like myself tend to value. And as an example, I use the Second Amendment. Uh, I also think that the conservatives who are celebrating the passage of this bill as some clever, sneaky workaround, uh, and that the Supreme Court is something in the same vein, uh, that they have failed to consider just how wrong this can and will all go if the Democrats get too frustrated trying to overturn this law and instead just turn this precedent against other constitutionally protected individual rights, ones that conservatives hold valuable that are to them, and I think usually objectively, under uh, a very constant threat, such as the right to keep and bear arms. And in fact, uh, a recent comment that was left on that past video, which I think came out in December about SB8, uh, a recent comment was left on that video, and I think it really actually summed up the ramifications of SB8 very well. They said, 
How are American lawyers going to prevent the governors of the 50 states from using the Constitution as a doormat? Now, this is why I believe understanding SP8 is so crucial that I feel the need to today revisit the topic. Uh, because for me, the fight over SB8 isn't really primarily necessarily about abortion. No, buddy. It's not pretty. We're dealing with some profound ideologies here. You yeah. know, on the one side, it's anti-abortion. On the other side, just, you know, I got a machete. Yeah. So deal with it, Congress. You know, you can't legislate morality, well, although you can legislate machetes, turns out. Which, uh, I'm just, God, this isn't Canada. Yeah, you're a Now, even if you believe that the Supreme Court should overrule or limit Roe v. Wade or other precedents protecting abortion rights, such as Planned Parenthood v. Casey, you still have reason to be concerned about this menace to other constitutional rights. And in fact, in response to the Supreme Court's decision, recently, uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, pictured here trying to eradicate COVID-19 using his powers of telekinesis, proposed doing precisely what I feared, and he issued the following statement. I am outraged by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision allowing Texas's ban on most abortion services to remain in place and largely endorsing Texas's scheme to insulate its laws from the fundamental protections of Roe v. Wade. But if states can now shield their laws from review by the federal courts that compare assault weapons to Swiss Army knives, in California will use that authority to protect people's lives where Texas used it to put women in harm's way. He goes on to say that I have directed my staff to work with the legislature and the attorney general on a bill that would create a right of action allowing private citizens to seek injunctive relief and statutory damages of at least $10,000 per violation plus cost and attorney's fees against anyone who manufactures, distributes, or sells an assault weapon or ghost gun kit or parts in the state of California. If the most efficient way to keep these devastating weapons off our streets is to add the threat of private lawsuits, we should do just that. Now, something else worth noting, prior to SP8, most anti-abortion legislation was subject to pre-enforcement challenges and enjoined before even taking effect. In fact, this is part of what had prompted the Texas's law, Texas's law's particular legislative design. Now, most gun regulations, on the other hand, have been upheld by the federal court, particularly in the Ninth Circuit, though that might change if the Supreme Court calls for a more careful scrutiny of laws affecting the right to keep and bear arms. But regardless, bearing in mind that I am always right, let me just point something out to conservative viewers. Right now, you guys are in an ideal position to take back the House and the Senate and make significant gains even, I would say, in liberal states. And all you have to do before the midterm elections is not fuck up. That's it. All you have to do is not fuck up. And to be honest, I can't imagine a bigger fuck-up than to start pushing civil, social conservative issues like this right now. Now look, if fighting for abortion, for you, 
is such an important issue that you are willing to do it knowing that it will cost you elections, then by all means proceed. I would never suggest someone betray their own morals and convictions, even if I disagree with them. But just understand that that is what you are doing. You are costing yourselves the ability to get reelected and are giving the left another two years to do all the things that they have been doing for the last two years that you hate so much. All you guys have to do is not fuck up, and there are many other important issues outside of abortion that could be rolled back. In fact, I can think of a number of issues you guys could take up with libertarians like myself and even with moderate liberals and create a fairly broad coalition to do some very good things. But pushing abortion will cost you the ability to gain control to take on these other important issues. Now, there's another reason I wanted to talk about uh, SBA today, uh, and that is actually because there has also been some very interesting recent developments in the ongoing battle over SB8. Now, when the U.S. Supreme Court punted on Jackson back in December and sent it back to the lower courts, uh, the Texas Supreme Court ended up addressing issues raised by the majority in Jackson a few months earlier. Now, in December, the Supreme Court of the United States decided in Whole Woman's Health v. Jackson that this case ruled that abortion co providers could not sue the attorney general, state judges, and clerks of court. These state officers simply had no role in enforcing SB 8. However, Justice Neil Gorsuch, majority opinion, suggested that state licensing officials may play some role in enforcing the law. He said, on the briefing and arguments before us, it appears that these particular defendants fall within the scope of Ex parte Young's historic exception to state sovereign immunity. Each of these individuals in an executive licensing official who may or must take enforcement actions against the petitioners if they violate the terms of Texas's health and safety code, including SB 8, uh, and they reference Texas Occupational Code, uh, Section 164.055A. And accordingly, we hold that sovereign immunity does not bar the petitioner's suit against the named defendants at the motion to dismiss stage. Now, they mentioned Ex parte Young there. Uh, that is a landmark Supreme Court case from 1908. Uh, and I will have uh, a link. Well, uh, first of all, I'll have a link to uh, the entire case brief for uh, Whole Women's Health versus Jackson down in the description. I will also have a link to the full case brief for Ex parte Young down in the description. But let me just quickly remind you guys what that case is about. Now, the, the primary holding in Ex parte Young was that if government officials attempted to enforce an unconstitutional law, sovereign immunity does not prevent people whom the law harms from suing those officials in their individual capacity for injunctive relief. That is because they are not acting on behalf of the state in this particular situation. Now, the background that sparked this case was when Minnesota imposed harsh penalties on railroads that violated state limits on what they could charge within the state. 
Northern Pacific Railway's shareholders asserted that the laws violated the 14th Amendment and the Dormant Commerce Clause, and that the railroad should be released from the need to comply with the law. And the State Attorney General, Edward T. Young, should be enjoined from enforcing the law. The federal court granted the request for an injunction since it was unpersuaded by Young that the 11th Amendment removed its jurisdiction over a case in which the state was sued by a citizen of another state. Uh, in this case, we're talking about the shareholders. Now, the 11th Amendment does not prohibit suits between states or suits by the United States against a state. And more subtly, it allows individuals to sue local governments because they are viewed as more similar to a corporation than a state government. And if you want to know more about the 11th Amendment, it just so happens that I have a past video where we went over the 11th Amendment and its relationship to another landmark Supreme Court case known as Chisholm v. Georgia. And we also talked about its relation to the concept of popular sovereignty. So you can find a link to that episode in a little card I'll put in the upper right-hand corner of this video right about now. Or, of course, if you are listening to the audio-only version, you will find a link to that episode down in the description. But getting back to the majority in Jackson, the amount of hedging his argument that Justice Gorsuch was able to fit in that one paragraph we just read was almost impressive, if not slightly maddening in the way that it tries far too hard to obfuscate what should actually be a very simple conclusion. Now, Justice Gorsuch was taking pains not to forcefully disagree with Justice Thomas, who determined that licensing officials cannot enforce the statute. And here's where it gets interesting, because on remand, the Fifth Circuit certified a question to the Texas Supreme Court asking, did the state licensing officials enforce this statute? And today, the Supreme Court of Texas answered, well, not today, excuse me, it was a couple days ago now. They answered the question with a resounding no. And Justice Boyd of the Texas Supreme Court wrote the majority opinion for a unanimous court. Now, this case was noteworthy for a few different reasons. Uh, to me, the most important is its flat-out rejection of the court's absurd precedent of judicial supremacy set in Cooper v. Aaron. And in as far as the Texas Supreme Court roundly rejected Cooper's primary holding, I commend the court because, despite their name, there is nothing actually supreme about the Supreme Court. The Constitution is supreme. The court's opinions on the Constitution are not. Now, I've talked about this in past videos as well. Uh, in fact, I've done an entire video on Cooper v. Aaron, and this has come up in several recent case, uh, episodes I've done dealing with the COVID mandate cases. Uh, I'll put links to those also down in the description if you want to go check out those episodes. But the fact is that it is rare that a state court formally disagrees with the United States Supreme Court, but this is just such a case. Now, judicial supremacy is a concept that is regularly defended from the bench by both Justices Breyer and Sotomayor. However, its most zealous defender has always been the chief. So to be perfectly honest, it was a real treat to see Chief 
Justice Roberts' judicial supremacy so strongly rebuked. It is very rare that Roberts gets overruled. It happened. He deserves it. Moving on. Now, second, what Texas found in this holding was that Justice Thomas is indeed vindicated. Now, Thomas was the only justice who was willing to adopt the most natural reading of SB 8. Now, Josh Blackman, a constitutional lawyer from the South Texas College of Law, uh, summed the reason for this up this way. The cynic in me thinks that at least some of the justices in the majority were unwilling to adopt a reading that foreclosed every possibility of relief. Better, the thinking goes, to at least signal that there may be some way for the abortion clinics to prevail, even if that relief was meaningless. You know, force the journalist to write about a divided ruling or some such pablum. Gorsuch's hedged decision reflects an effort to keep the majority together. Now, this case also reinforces a point I made in a previous video about SB8 and Jackson, that regardless of your personal opinion of the purpose of SB8, its execution really was brilliant. Now, that is not an endorsement of the tactics used in this case. I am very much uh, opposed to uh, the way that SB8 was utilized, but still find myself in awe at the procedural circumvention that this bill somehow managed to accomplish. Now, I want to close by talking about the reasons that SBA's opponents should actually be optimistic about seeing this law overturned. The first reason opponents should be hopeful is that this law, that this law won't be successful is precisely because many of its conservative supporters are so sure that it has succeeded that they have already begun to overplay their hand. Now, this will horribly backfire if they don't get things under control fast. In Missouri alone, we have seen four new bills introduced. And in fact, there is a great article from a local newspaper, the Columbia Missourian. I have linked down in the description to this article, and it discusses these bills. And I have also linked to copies of the text of these proposed bills themselves. But let's quickly sum them up. First, we have Senate Bill 753, proposed by Senator Eric Burleson, who is a Republican from Battlefield, and this would require medical providers to provide life-saving care to infants who are born alive during abortion, even if it's against the parent's wishes. It would establish the Born Alive Abortion Survivor Protections Act, a provision that is modeled after a proposed federal law that has yet to pass. Next, we have Senate Joint Resolution 34, proposed by Senator Bill Eigel. He is a Republican from Weldon Spring, and he would amend the state's constitution to prohibit the General Assembly from appropriating money to any medical facility that performs abortions, excepting hospitals. While this is not outrightly stated in the amendment, the legislation targets Planned Parenthood since it is the only non-hospital medical facility that performs abortions in Missouri. Next, we have 
Senate Bill 778, proposed by Senators Rick Bratton, who is a Republican from Harrisonville. And this bill is just a copycat of the controversial Texas Bill SB8 that bans abortions when a fetal heartbeat is detected and allows private citizens to act as the law's enforcers. Now, Bratton's bill would establish a way for private citizens to sue anyone who performs an abortion when a heartbeat is detected or who engages in conduct that helps facilitate the abortion, including reimbursing the cost of the abortion through insurance. Now, another House bill, uh, which had a hearing Wednesday, would criminalize producing, selling, buying, or using any medical devices or drug to perform an abortion. HB 10 was proposed by Representative Brian Seitz, who is a Republican from Branson. Now, at the beginning of this video, I mentioned that if conservatives wanted to take back the federal legislature and even win state and local elections in traditionally liberal states, all they had to do is not fuck up. Now, these four pieces of legislation are perfect examples of conservatives doing the exact opposite of not fucking up. And in the meantime, we should not forget that a Texas state court ruled in December that SBA's delegation of enforcement to private parties is a violation of the Texas state constitution. Now, that ruling is now on appeal, and the trial court did not issue an injunction against enforcement of SBA while the litigation continues. Nonetheless, it is entirely possible that SBA's private enforcement ploy will ultimately even be defeated in the state court. And while a state constitutional ruling against SB8 cannot prevent other states from imitating the statute, as those states' constitutions may not constrain enforcement delegation in the same way, a Texas state ruling against SB8 might at least have some persuasive value for other state courts. At the very least, state constitutional challenges are an additional tool in the armory of those who seek to counter this pernicious strategy for undermining our constitutional rights. But there is also uh, recourse on a federal level as well. Federal law has never guaranteed a right to a pre-enforcement constitutional challenge to a law, in particular when it comes to civil lawsuits, including ones that implicate constitutional rights such as the Free Speech Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the Second Amendment, or others, potential targets must often wait until they are sued and then raise the Constitution as a defense rather than by suing up front. Now, pre-enforcement challenges to governmental enforcement do happen because one can think, seek an injunction against the enforcer, but when it comes to tort liability in which there could be a wide range of potential plaintiffs such as the pre-enforcement challenges seen in SB 8, this is usually unavailable because there is no particular person one can even sue up front. Again, constitutional rights can still be vindicated. They just have to be raised defensively in response to a lawsuit rather than preemptively in the right holder's own lawsuit seeking an injunction. Now, we see this in many free speech cases such as New York Times v. Sullivan and Snyder v. Phelps. When speakers feel chilled by unconstitutionally overbroad tort rules related to, say, libel, such as in Sullivan, 
or intentional infliction of emotional distress, such as in Snyder. They generally need to raise the defense after they are sued. The New York Times, for instance, couldn't just sue the state of Alabama before Sullivan's lawsuit uh, went to federal court to try and get Alabama's libel law narrowed. And the same would apply to tort lawsuits against gun manufacturers, gun sellers, or gun owners as well. Any Second Amendment defense, or for that matter, really any federal statutory defense under the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act would have to be raised as a defense, not as a pre-enforcement challenge against state court judges or clerks. Now, to be sure, the very presence of such civil causes of action may create a chilling effect. But that has historically not been seen as enough to create a categorical entitlement to filing a pre-enforcement challenge to block a civil cause of action. However, the best example of this is a landmark case that was actually a direct predecessor to Roe v. Wade. And this was the first case to establish the modern right to privacy as a matter of substantive due process under the 14th Amendment. Now, this right to privacy, uh, and specifically as it was uh, protected in this case, Griswold v. Connecticut specifically, were the main precedent cited by Justice Harry Blackman when he authored the majority opinion in Roe. So Griswold v. Connecticut is a landmark case that establishes U.S. citizens' right to privacy under the Constitution. The case involved Estelle Griswold, the executive director of Planned Parenthood, and the Connecticut court, which found that Griswold and other medical professionals were in violation of a state law that criminalized counseling and other medical treatments regarding contraception to married couples. And so Griswold, on behalf of Planned Parenthood, argued that Connecticut's law and subsequent punishment to Griswold was a violation of a citizen's privacy. This case called into question whether the Constitution protects the right of privacy, and specifically in this particular case, marital privacy, against a state restriction. So, challenging SB 8 will simply require another Estelle Griswold willing to break the law precisely so they can challenge it, uh, and I am sure that there will be no shortage of people willing to fill that role. Now, there is one more uh, incredibly elegant and, in my opinion, far superior option than simply raising constitutional rights as a defense. However, this isn't nearly as certain to necessarily work. But this is an option that was laid out in an amicus brief filed by the Firearms Policy Coalition in the case of Whole Women's Health versus Jackson. And as with everything else, you will find a link to this full amicus brief available in the video description. It's actually really interesting. I would recommend checking this out. So, the Firearms Policy Coalition urged an alternative and, again, in my opinion, even better approach to dealing with this issue. And that was by doing away with sovereign immunity limitations on suing state officials for violating constitutional rights protected by the 14th Amendment. As FPC explained in their brief, 
These restrictions have no basis in the text and original meaning of the Constitution, and they go against the central purpose of the amendment, which was to ensure effective enforcement of constitutional rights against state governments, including through federal courts. Now, the Firearms Policy Coalition's opposition to SB 8 is also yet another sign that the law menaces far more than just abortion rights. The FPC, as its name implies, is a conservative or libertarian-leaning group concerned about threats to gun rights. Anyways, that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope that you enjoyed the video. Uh, if you did, uh, let me know by hitting that little thumbsy-uppy button below the video there. Uh, if you hated it, you can go ahead and uh, click that little thumbsy-downy button. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the channel so you always uh, know when my newest videos come out. And please leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about really anything related to this. This video, uh, the bills we discussed, just whatever the fuck you guys want to leave a comment about. Uh, I always enjoy a chance to interact with you guys. Uh, and you probably know this, but uh, when you leave likes on the video, when you subscribe to the channel, when you leave comments, that all signals the YouTube algorithm to uh, share this video out uh, more. So if you would be willing to do those things, I would personally very much appreciate it uh, to help uh, spread the show and, uh, you know, bring in new viewers and hopefully end up having a, a richer and fuller discussion of constitutional law and moral philosophy. But anyways, that's really uh, all I got for you guys. So until next time, I have been Locking Liberal for Categorical Imperatives, talking about SB8. And all this left to say is that furthermore, Cartago de Lenda est. Now, there's a movie I haven't seen. Uh, Vera Drake? Didn't see it. It's for an abortion movie? Pretty funny. Let's rent it. Done. Okay. All abort! Doop, doop!